Oh. <laughs> to HBCU Pulse Radio yeah. on Sirius XM Channel 142 HBCU. You are now locked in to HBCU Pulse. We are the number one outlet for HBCU life, talking about everything that's important to our culture. From on-campus issues to politics and what's trending on the yard, we always keep that same energy. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to HBCU Pulse Radio. What's going on, everybody? This is Randall Barnes, the founder of HBC Pulse and the host of HBC Pulse Radio here on Sirius XM in the building for a very important show on today where we're talking about land-grant HBCUs and the battle to get equal funding from the state government. Now, as you all know, or you should know, I'm a Fort Valley State University graduate, and FESU is one of the 191890 land-grant institutions in America. So this is a topic that really hits home for me. Coming up, we have Dr. Antonio McLaurin, Vice President of Innovation and Program Implementation for the 1890 University Foundation, here to break down the complex fight to secure equal funding from the state governments around the nation for our 1890 land-grant institutions. But before we get to that, I want to set the table for the spotlight on the battle between HBCUs and the state government or HBCUs versus the state government. So let's break down the history. The land-grant college system was created in 1862 by the passage of the Morrill Land-Grant Act. The Morrill Land-Grant Act granted states with land that could be used for profit with the funds being used to establish a college in the state that would teach agriculture and mechanical arts. The first land-grant colleges, of course, were segregated. So the Second Morrill Act of 1890 was established to give expanded educational opportunities in the field of agriculture and mechanical arts to black college students at the time. The bill mandated that states establish land-grant colleges for African-Americans, and the Second Morrill Act of 1890 also mandated that black land-grant colleges receive funding from the state on a, quote, just and equitable basis annually. But here's the thing. The states have the discretion to determine what amounts to equitable funding. If that sounds a little bit weird to you, I understand. Anyway, several of the 19 land-grant HBCUs have been underfunded by billions of dollars in the years since the passage of the Second Morrill Act of 1890. Forbes reported the direct figures in February 2022 in their article, How America Cheated Its Black Colleges. And the number that they came up with was $12 billion that the land-grant HBCUs have been underfunded by their respective state governments combined together. So this is a very complex conversation that takes a lot of depth to uncover and is more than we have time for. But that's what we brought in an expert, Dr. Antonio McLaurin, Vice President of Innovation and Program Implementation for the 1890 University Foundation to help us further break down 1890 land-grant institutions, their history, and also the challenges that they face. And later, I'll re-air my Randall's Thoughts commentary from a few weeks ago, breaking down Tennessee State University's $250 million win. And mind you, Tennessee State is one of the 19 land-grant HBCUs, and they secured a big win in a bigger war for the sustainability of our HBCUs. You're listening to HBC Post Radio. Dr. McLaurin, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing well, Randall. How are you, sir? I am amazing. So could you briefly explain the history of 1890 land-grant institutions? Absolutely, I can do that. And, you know, just first of all, I just really appreciate you having me on the show. And it's it's certainly my pleasure to represent the 1890 Universities Foundation. So just a quick history, the 1890 land-grant institutions really dates back to the year 1890, 
when at that time, Congress passed legislation to basically establish land-grant institutions in specific states to educate Blacks in the areas of military science, mechanical arts, and agriculture. And the reason why that legislation was so critical was because at that time in our country, Blacks could not attend the same institutions as whites. So really, when you look at the 1890 legislation, you really have to go back a little further to the year 1862, because that year in 1862, that was the first time the legislation was passed by Congress to establish the first round of land-grant institutions. All of those institutions are predominantly white institutions, and there's one of those in every state. So then you fast forward to 1890, Congress essentially passed the same legislation again through the Morrill Act. So this is really part two. And part two established the 1890 land-grant institutions, all of which are HBCUs. The idea was, how do we provide high education opportunities for Blacks in this country at land-grant institutions? So that was really the idea um, behind the legislation, and that's why the legislation was passed. So what's the difference between federal and state money allotment? That's a great question, and, 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 and here's a way I can answer it. So on the federal side, things were not as good as they are today. If you look at the land-grant funding, particularly for 1890s, direct payments, direct appropriations really didn't begin for the 1890s until around the 1960s, 1970s. However, when you look at the history, PWI, land-grant institutions, they've been getting funding since the late 1800s. I mean, the Hatch Act, which provides research dollars for PWI land-grant institutions, that was passed in 1887. And then in 1914, you had another round of legislation that established uh, payments for extension programs that was passed in 1914. But again, the 1890 land-grant institutions, their support didn't begin until around 1967. So really, it's, it's, it's taken a long time even on the federal side. And now in terms of the state side, for land-grant dollars in the statute, the state is supposed to match the federal appropriation on a dollar-for-dollar basis. And what is taking place, a lot of this is rooted in just rampant discrimination and just a blatant unappreciation for HBCUs and 1890 land-grant institutions in general. As a result, that has led to underfunding of the HBCU land-grant programs uh, at the state level. So the part that really just bothers me when I research about the 1890 uh, land grant institutions and the second Murillo Act of 1890, because I've always been interested in this, the state government, like you said, they have to, to match it one by one and they don't. And this is a right. federal act, the second Murillo Act of 1890. So why isn't Correct. there a penalty against the state government for not doing this? It seems like they've been doing this, you know, without any recourse. And the HBCUs have to sue the state to even get the money. And then sometimes it's only half the money. And they make it seem as if, oh, well, this is an investment. This is something we're giving the HBCUs. Like, why is there no penalty that the state has to incur for what they're not giving HBCUs via the Second Rural Act of 1890? That's a great question. And, you know, I, you know, part of it goes back to politics at the state level. You know, again, it, it's rooted in just the disparities that have been happening decade after decade where HBCUs have been underfunded. And as a result, in a way, it's become sort of business as usual, where because of the fact that HBCUs haven't been getting the resources to develop their programs, then it's sort of like it perpetuates the idea that they don't need the money. But if they got the money at first, they would have been able to develop programs to then demonstrate that they need more money. So it, it's sort of like a cyclical issue. 
if I don't have money, if I'm not receiving any money to, to be able to develop programs, then I can't necessarily go to the state and say, hey, I need more money if I have nothing to demonstrate with a little bit of money that I previously received. Part of the issue, I think, is the lack of capacity that has happened uh, over time has essentially, I think in, in the minds of many individuals at the state level, it has perpetuated the idea that HBCUs don't need the money, and which is the furthest thing from the truth. So let's shift the subject a little bit and talk about how land grant funding can help in the betterment of black institutions, because we always talk about how HBCUs are underfunded. But I think the conversation that we don't have is what will happen if HBCUs are adequately funded. So how can land grant money be used to help HBCUs? And when we finally because we're going to win the fight. When we finally win the fight for funding, how will that land grant investment help in improving our HBCUs? So land grant funding um, right now is currently used for research programs as well as extension programs. So that's really according to the law. So research programs are significant because they're using HBCUs in particular. The 1890s are using those funds to address various problems. Like right now, one of the main problems that we're dealing with is um, food inequality and addressing human health. And so developing projects that will address why are 1890 communities suffering from high incidence of high blood pressure, diabetes, stroke, heart attack, and how can we direct programs that affect policy so that policy will be able to create opportunities by which underserved audiences have access to healthy food, like food deserts. I mean, that's that's still a major issue across communities, across the 1890 landscape, especially in the rural areas. So that's an example of of how research is being utilized to really address some major problems. What I'm hearing is that land grants not only benefit the students that attend them, but also the community. So if you have a funded land grant institution, the community can benefit and maybe even the state. But I want to talk about Forbes' article that it released in February of 2022. It was called How America Cheated Its Black Colleges. And in that article, they had a table and the table listed a few of the land grant HBCUs and the money that they've been underfunded by. And we all share it to show how much that our HBCUs in general have been robbed, but specifically our land-grant HBCUs. So how is that number calculated? Like, how can we know that number? So that number, you know, I think there's a number of indicators. One one major indicator is is definitely going to be the, the university budget. You know, uh, you know, every year the university has to develop a, an operating budget, and then they submit that to their respective state assembly. That budget in and of itself is sort of the anchor. I mean, that shows exactly what they need in order to provide education to students, as well as to support faculty, support staff, facilities, you name it. So it really starts with that budgeting process at at the university level. And then beyond that, you know, the other thing that I think plays a, a, a huge role is just looking at their portfolio of resources that they're receiving from the state, you know, wh- whether that's through grants as well as federal resources as well that the university should be receiving. So I think there's certainly a number of ways to, to show the shortfall of how universities are being underfunded. And again, this kind of goes back to that advocacy, that state level advocacy that that is so critical that when universities are having to, to go to their respective state legislator for approval of their budgets, you know, they need to hear from not just the university, not just the president, not, you know, it really needs to be a community-wide effort. 
to show that these universities need this funding in order to be operational, be functional, be effective. But it really comes back to the budgets that the universities are articulating and putting before their respective state assemblies. So in the Forbes article, and it's called How America Cheated Its Black Colleges, for those that haven't seen it, like I said, it listed all of institutions. It, it didn't list Tuskegee, but it listed Delaware State and Central State. And, you know, Tuskegee, Delaware State, Central State, they're a part of the 19 HBCUs that are land-grant HBCUs. And Delaware State and Central State in the article, it says zero by it, meaning that it's not underfunded at all based on the calculation that Forbes got in that article. So why does it appear that they've gotten, Delaware State and Central State, they've gotten the correct allotment of land-grant money and not the other land-grant institutions? That's a great question. You know, my so my assessment is so Central State is actually one of the newest land grant institution. They didn't achieve their land grant institution status until the 2014 Farm Bill. So before 2014, that Farm Bill legislation was passed. There were 18 land grant institutions. We have 19 now because of the Central State addition. That's an interesting point about the Delaware State. So what that what that article is demonstrating is that Delaware State has, in terms of the land grant monies, have, have not been shortchanged by the state. And perhaps they might be one of the few states, because there are a few states that, that are getting their one-to-one match now. It's not the majority, though. So I have to shout out HBCU Pulse. I've been talking about Forbes and how America cheated Black College, that amazing article. Well, HBCU Pulse, okay, we reported in January that Tennessee State University was awarded a $250 million quote-unquote investment from the state of Tennessee and Governor Bill Lee in his budget in 2022 that finally got to Tennessee State University. So is this really a win? Because we know that theoretically speaking, it's not an investment, it's a repayment. But is this really a win for Tennessee State University? So I can, I, I guess I can answer in two ways. I would say it's a win in that it is money that, that we didn't have before. But you, but you are you are essentially correct. It, it is a repayment. It's not new money. It's money that we should have had before. It, Tennessee State should have had that money previously. And if they did, it, it'll be interesting to see what type of capacity could have been developed if they had received that money when they should have received it. You know, because capacity building, capacity building is something that I have in my career, I spent a lot of time working in. And capacity building was always something that we talked about across the system. How do we know when capacity is being built? And the thing is, is that capacity takes time to build, whether you're talking facilities, whether you're talking faculty, staff development, training of students, graduating students. I mean, it takes time to develop capacity. But more importantly for this conversation, it takes resources, financial resources to build that capacity. So if, if the capacity was provided, let's say, 20, 30 years ago, and all those millions of dollars that have been shortchanged, if those if those dollars were awarded to Tennessee State on time, the, the capacity would look far different than it is today. You know, $250 million, it's great for Tennessee State to receive that, but it is a repayment. It's not new money. So it's a way to sort of maybe rectify what happened in the past to sort of correct, you know, some of the failures at the state level in funding Tennessee State. But not only do we need to make that correction, because we do, we also need to make investment. We do need to make investment beyond just rectifying and correcting the past. We need to we need to really invest new resources, new funding into the 1890 land grant institutions because they're doing fantastic work. And that's really, I think, sort of the next step after these. You know, I hope we do see more state by state corrections. 
And after these corrections are, are put in place, the next step is how do we then invest new resources into these institutions beyond what they're asking? I would even love to see an insti- a situation in which 1890s are funded more than one, that one-to-one state match because it's happening on, the, on the, P- the PWI 1862 side. There are some 1862s that get more than their one-to-one match at the state level. 1890s, I would love to see that happen. We're just we're just trying to fight for what the law states. We just want the one-to-one. So, but can we get to the place where we get more than that? How do we get, how do we build that level of, of recognition? I, so I think that is where we need to go. But you're, you're, you're entirely correct. It's not an investment. That's more of a repayment. So we're running short on time. I have so many more questions I would love to ask you, but this one has to end off the interview. Because, you know, you have South Carolina State University. They're requesting $209 million from the state government to complete five capital funding projects to improve, you know, the facilities of the university. You have so many other land-grant institutions that have been underfunded. And we talked about it before. We talked about how there's no remedy against the state for withholding this money. So is, like, is suing the only way to go about trying to get this money? And is it really achievable that we can correct about a trillion dollars of underfunding for our 19 land-grant HBCUs? Randall, I think that given the examples that we've seen, recent examples in Maryland and, and in Tennessee, and now South Carolina is doing the same thing, I think aggressive action is what's necessary. And I think that every 1890 state should at least try. If we don't try, then really we're at the, we're, we're at the same place that we are right now. And But I think aggressive action is, is definitely needed. Um, I also, you know, again, want to just just the the advocacy, the the level of advocacy that needs to take place across each state, stakeholders within each state, really beating down their state reps, their state senators, and also the U.S. representatives and U.S. senators as well. I mean, we need to make our voices loud and clear and consistent. We need we all need to be on one accord that our 1890 institutions, um, they provide you know, critical research extension res- and extension resources, as well as academic resources for our students. And in order to train the next generation of food and ag- agricultural scientific professionals, particularly professionals who, you know, the majority are going to be of color coming out of those institutions, we need to ensure that they have those resources needed to strengthen the next generation of scientists. So it really needs to be a level of advocacy that we haven't seen before. Where can we find you on social media? How can we support the 1890 University Foundation? And I know this is a loaded question, but I got to get this in. As HBCU supporters, how can we support our 1890 land-grant HBCUs in their fight to get adequate funding? I'm on LinkedIn. So if, if for folks that are on LinkedIn, that's, that's the best place to find me in terms of the social media aspect. We also have an 1890 Foundation LinkedIn account as well. So you can find both me, Antonio McLaren, or 1890 Foundation on LinkedIn. Our website is 1890foundation.org. So anybody has any questions about 1890s, what's an 1890, who are the 1890 institutions, that's the best place to find it. 1890foundation.org is the, is the website. My, um, I, I have a call out to alum. Anyone who's attended an 1890 institution, and specifically food and agricultural alum of 1890s. Donate to your 1890 institution and try to earmark your your donation to go back to the ag programs. 
I uh, am, a, am a proud two-time alum of Virginia State University, which is one of the 1890 land-grant institutions, and I give back to Virginia State every year. You know, that's important. We need to build a culture of giving back, but also we need to build a, an even better culture of giving back early. So a lot of times alums from HBCUs, in terms of this, my observation, we don't donate until like much later in our professional career, maybe when we're in our 30s and our 40s. We need to, we need to develop a, a culture of giving back in our 20s. And, and we need to start early, even if it's just $5. Just give something back to your institution. Give something back to your home. We got to continue to keep the doors open. We got to continue to keep these programs thriving and developing. And then the last thing I will quickly mention, a quick plug, there's a program called the USDA 1890 National Scholars Program. This is a scholarship that provides four-year full-ride scholarships to anyone that wants to attend an 1890 land-grant institution. And the reason why I know this program works is because I went through the program myself. So the beauty of the program is that it provides a job at the end that where a student who graduates will have a job waiting for them at USDA. They don't have to compete for the job. They don't have to apply for it. It's already waiting for them. And again, full ride, internship included, everything is paid for. So that application is, if they're open right now, you can go on the USDA website or just Google search USDA 1890 National Scholars Program and you'll find the link to that program. And this is, again, to anyone who's in high school, high school senior, you're looking to, to Maybe you go to an 1890 institution, you're looking for ways to pay for it. This is the way to do it. All you have to do is major in a food and agricultural or related field, and you're good to go. I love it. This is pertinent information. Thank you so much. Dr. Antonio McLaurin, Vice President of Innovation and Program Implementation for the 1890 Foundation. Thank you so much for coming on. We love to have you back on. Hey, appreciate it, Randall. My pleasure. HBCU. They know just who we are. Post Radio. You're, you're, you're listening to Randall's thoughts yeah. on HBCU Pulse Radio. So on today's Randall's Thoughts, I want to shine a spotlight on Tennessee State University's big $250 million win. So Tennessee State University, as reported by HBCUPost.com, was afforded $250 million earmarked in Tennessee Governor Bill Lee's proposal. The $250 million is presented as a one-time investment that is the largest granted to an HBCU by a state after the Tennessee Office of Legislative Budget Analysis in 2021 showed that Tennessee State has been underfunded for decades. The university is owed between $151 million and $544 million in land-grant funding. And that's a big thing. That's something that a lot of HBCUs go through. But Tennessee State really pushed the state legislator to fund them so they can help in improvements on campus. Now, land-grant colleges and universities such as Tennessee State University were established after the Second Murrell Act of 1890 was signed into law by the 23rd President of the United States, Benjamin Harrison, and the bill was sponsored by Vermont Senator Justin Murrell, hence it being called the Murrell Act. Schools such as Tennessee State University and the University of Tennessee, which are the only two land grants in Tennessee, were designated land by the federal government to create institutions that would expand educational opportunities in agriculture and mechanical arts. But one big thing about the Second Murrell Act of 1890 is that it specifically designated that the state would match the funding given by the federal government to land-grant institutions. And you only have two of them. HBCUs with land grants like Tennessee State 
did not get equitable dollar for dollar funding and their predominantly white counterparts would get more money than the HBCUs. Now, what's really interesting is that the General Assembly of Tennessee created a 75-25 funding method for the land-grant money, where the University of Tennessee got 75% and Tennessee State was supposed to get the rest. Now, that already is an interesting split. However, Tennessee State never got that money. And that was what the Office of Legislative Budget Analysis found out in 2021. And that's why they estimated that the money that was owed to Tennessee State University was between $151 million and $544 million, And it very well could be more. This is a big win for Tennessee State University. And I applaud Tennessee State University for really pushing their state legislator to give them what they're owed. And they're still owed more. I think this is a great model for HBCUs to follow, such as my HBCU, Fort Valley State University, in getting what is owed. It's always an argument about what HBCUs aren't doing. It's always an argument about what HBCUs should be doing. But we have to look at the economics of collegiate life, and we have to understand that HBCUs have not been given a shot at an equitable amount of money to improve our programs, our infrastructure, and our institutions overall. And we have to go get our check, as Dr. King eloquently stated in one of his final speeches at Manchester College, where he specifically talked about land-grant universities. Our government was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that it was willing to undergird its white peasants from Europe with an economic floor. But not only did they give the land, they built land-grant colleges with government money to teach them how to farm. Not only that, they provided county agents to further their expertise in farming. Not only that, they provided low interest rates in order that they could mechanize their farms. Not only that, today many of these people are receiving millions of dollars in federal subsidies not to farm, and they are the very people telling the black man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. This is what we are faced with, and this is a reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. You're locked into HBCU Post Radio. HBCU Post Radio is your number one source for news, information, and discussions about HBCU life and culture. From sports to politics and what's trending on yours. We're always at the heart of the culture. You don't want to miss this. Tune into HBCU Post Radio every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Central on Sirius XM Channel 142 HBCU. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for the show on today. Once again, I want to thank Dr. Antonio McLaurin, Vice President of Innovation and Program Implementation for the 1890 Foundation for coming on and further breaking down the crisis that our 1890 land-grant institutions are going through. We talk about it more on HBCUPost.com, so make sure to head over to HBCUPost.com to check out the article where we do a deep dive on what's going on and really lay out the history of everything that's happening with the 1890 land-grant institutions. And also, we talk a little bit about South Carolina State's fight to get over $200 million to help with capital improvements on campus. But also, make sure to follow HBCU Post on Instagram and YouTube at HBCU Post, Twitter and TikTok, the HBCU Post, and subscribe to HBCU Post Radio wherever you get your podcast. But thank you so much for tuning in. And as always, we'll see you on the other side, and I'll check you out next week. Like what you hear? Uh.
Yeah. Subscribe to HBCU Pulse Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, head to HBCUPulse.com to stay up to date on what's going on in the HBCU community. Thank Thank you for for listening listening to HBCU HBCU Pulse Pulse Radio. Radio.